Welcome everyone to the weekly Hoon. I'm Bernard Hickey for the Kaka. And with us here, we have our um, my sparring, sparring partner and um, also tr news tragic, uh, Peter Bale. Great to see you, Peter. News tragic? Jesus. Tra <laughs> tra tragic news. Yeah. I don't know whether yeah. we spar. We, it's, it's, I think it's all banter, Bernard. But oh, yeah. my, my skateboarding dog today is about me being accused of being a Nazi. And so I would write, like, if it's all right, I would like to run a quick poll at the very end as to whether I am, in fact, and have shown Nazi tendencies this week. <laughs> Yeah, if, if the a, people on the thing would help me help me decide whether I am, in fact, you know, I mean, I, I'm I'm dressed like Vladimir Zelensky today for a reason. Oh yeah, well, mm. talk about a guy who is always getting the tone just right and is basically the most heroic, um, loved character in the world right now. He's rocking that whole olive military fatigues thing. He is. Know. He is. Yeah. 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 No, I think you know he's 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 another he's another candidate for some icebreaker. In fact, we should probably send him some. Ah, no, that would be quite good. Maybe in the um, Ukrainian colours, um, but not too bright because um, we don't want too many people to know where he is. No, speaking of speaking of Ukrainian colours, there's our there's our friend Robert. Oh, Hi. Robert, great Hi, to guys. see you again. Yeah, we keep thinking, Robert, that um, a special guest star for a really big event, and then the event will quieten down in the weeks to come. <laughs> well, that's not the case with Ukraine. So what no, we're going to what we're, what we're going to do today is just spend the first 15 to 20 minutes on the um, events happening around in New Zealand uh, on the other front, but then from about uh, 4.15 4. to 4.45, concentrate on the dramas in Ukraine, if that's okay, and then um, answer some of our readers' and viewers' questions after 4.45. Yeah, so, as somebody's just noted, Robert, you're here for the next six months at this rate. So, so you're going to have to get you're going to have to get some jazzy jazzy shirts and and either some beer or gin for you to yeah yeah to sorry for being so unfashionable oh, that's good no we should we should all get our own dra drab green military fatigues um which seems to be seems, seems to be, to be working well for Mr Zelensky well can I tell you can I tell you something there's a, there's a fantastic poster which I I will by the end of this I will find this uh, rather remarkable picture of. Uh, Vladimir Zelensky um, on, a, on a it's a it's a piece of rather large street art in Poland, and it has Vladimir Vladimir uh, Zelensky Zelensky as um, Harry Potter, with a Z up on his uh, ah, yes. up on his uh, forehead instead of instead of the Harry Potter um, lightning bolt, which brings us possibly Bernard segueing elegantly. Shall we do the the Ukrainian uh, Z and discuss what it is? Or the yeah, Russian what I, I've seen it and it's cropped up in all sorts of places. And I mm. happen to notice now it's become the the identifier if you're pro-Russian. And that Correct. Um, there are various reports around that uh, the Chinese um, state-owned media, for example, are promoting all sorts of news articles and memes and things which focus on Z as the mm. as the theme. So mm. where, where does it come from? Do we well, know? I don't, so the Z aspect is is interesting. So all what we should think about this, and I wrote quite a bit about this in the in the uh, spin-off thing. Um, oh, excuse me, Brett Tamahori wants us to be focused on journalists. Anyway, I'll come back to that, Brett, because I do have something to say about that. But the um, all militaries in difficult situations like this uh, use specific identifiers for either specific battles or specific overall conflicts in order to avoid friendly fire. And in the first Gulf War, where I was, uh, it was a, it was a, and as, as a journalist, not as a combatant, I might add, uh, it was an upside down V. 
and that identified all of the coalition forces. And what was amazing about that war, of course, is that it had everybody in it, from the Syrians to the Egyptians to UAE, New Zealand even was in there. With I think we had two of our two Hercules were up there. Um, and we also had a military hospital, I recall, in Bahrain. But it is a, it is a way of identifying uh, very, very graphically the friendly side, as it were. Now, what's happened with the Russian one is that they've gone for a very graphic-looking Z, which is interesting in Cyrillic, because in Cyrillic, the letter Z actually looks more like a three. Um, there is a suggestion that it means that, that it's the word zapod, which means forward. Uh, I'm, I'm, choosing to, I'm choosing to say that it actually means Zelensky, uh, partly because he's the target, but also it's a, it kind of flicks it back on them. That's why I quite like that image of um, Zelensky dressed up as Harry Potter, which I, I will find and put on my proper my profile, if you like, in a minute. Um, what it's what's the, the way it's being turned around? This. So it's the other important thing about it in the Ukraine battlefield, I suspect, is that the Ukrainians are using many of the same weapons, uh, particularly heavy tanks, armored personnel car carriers. I mean, one of the great standbys in the in the um, Russian army is the uh, BP carrier, the armored personnel carrier. You've seen it in virtually every conflict since Afghanistan. And it's a long, a long sort of metal bus in a way, low, low slung, quite sexy looking metal bus, semi-amphibious. I wouldn't want to be stuck in the water in it with I was in the back. But the, Rus the Russians have many of them. Um, the uh, Ukrainians have them. They also have very similar aircraft, of course. And then we that leads into this other interesting debate about whether Poland is going to lend to the United States and then on land to Ukraine, it's MiG-29s. Because I, I always love the idea of Poland, uh, Romania, uh, Bulgaria, and Slovakia having entered NATO, where they're flying mixed mixed air forces of MiGs and uh, F-16s and various other, various other aircraft. So the Z thing, though, has turned into, as you say, Bernard, a kind of symbol. And what's interesting about it is it's also being pushed officially by the by the uh, uh, Soviet well sorry, oops that's a bit of a um, Freudian slip by the by the Russian uh, information machine and one of the most amusing ones was the incredibly attractive Maria Butina, Butina who if you recall was the rather frisky Russian spy sent in to um, infiltrate uh, the National Rifle Association and various others fabulous pictures of her with uh, Donald Trump Jr and various others um, and if you recall, she was prosecuted as a, as a foreign agent and sent back to uh, Russia. She claimed, to, as I recall, to have very close links. And when I say very close links, probably um, bedroom type links with the head of the Russian Central Bank. Um, and I, I think we're highly unlikely to defame the head of the Russian Central Bank at the moment, although it would be quite entertaining to see him try to prosecute us. Anyway, she is now a member of the Duma and is pushing um, the promotion of the Z as a way to support our boys. And when we get to our skateboarding dog story at the end, Bernard, which is literally about me, uh, I will come back to the Z because I'm getting attacked by a few people with a few Zs in their names. And, ah. that doesn't, and it doesn't mean they're having a snooze. Ah, no. It, on, on that information war, um, we will get back to it later on. I'm mm. just trying to think of a clever seg segue. A zeg oh, a segue. <laughs> Sorry. Excellent. We're going um, to back to New Zealand. Um, just to. to, to um, oh, well, uh, actually, uh, it is. It is, in fact, because New Zealand is one of the unfriendly countries, but they don't realise that we're New Zealand. This is actually Z for Zealand. Ah. Isn't that right, Bernard, uh, Robert? Oh, yeah. Come on, you can proselytise on this. It's called yeah. uh, um, constructive ambiguity. Mm, mm. Ah, right. Good. Uh, well, um, on, the, on the Ukrainian front, obviously, this week we saw finally um, the government uh, legislate some specific sanctions for Russia. 
which um, uh, removed some of the embarrassment for New Zealand being a bit behind the curve on this. And uh, it was interesting to see that um, none of the particular names talked about for Russian investors in New Zealand were named in any mm -hmm. lists that I saw. But uh, now New Zealand is, um, you know, in with the rest of the, the um, Western world uh, launching sanctions on, on Russia. Uh, but in a way, it, it got a bit swamped, at least uh, locally, politically, by this big poll that mm -hmm. came out last night showing that National were ahead of Labour for the first time since... Jesus, but have you segued straight into New Zealand politics from Ukrainian politics? That is a segue uh, too far. Yeah, probably not a very clever one or a very, yeah, all right, very get on with elegant, it. One, elegant right. one. So National up to 39 points in the polls versus 37 for Labour. This is the worst poll result for Jacinda Ardern as Prime Minister since she has been the leader. And in fact, in, a, in, a, in an unusual... Um, measure of the popularity normally we see preferred prime minister in new zealand rather than um uh approval ratings but um she's always been ahead in the preferred prime minister stakes when people are asked who do you want who, who would you prefer as prime minister and given a mm -hmm. list of seven or eight people in a head-to-head -head, uh with christopher luxon she was only ahead by 46 percent to 45 percent and it shows that uh National are very much back in the game with a new leader who has um, launched into it um, uh, uh, a bit like a bit like what I've just done with it with a segue that didn't really work by having mm. a complete speech that barely mentioned Ukraine or Omicron. But it did mention Air New Zealand a few times, didn't it? Didn't he used to work in an airline? I think I think he did. Yeah. Was he a baggage handler? No, I think he was the chief executive. And, was he? Uh, he was. And, um, he, keeps that, he keeps that very much under wraps. <laughs> I'm impressed that he's so discreet about that. He's wouldn't yeah. even, he wouldn't ever suggest that that was, you know, a recipe for running an entire country, would he? Yeah, yeah. No, no, and it's working for him. Obviously, there's a, um, a constituency who are keen to, to see um, a successful business leader as prime minister, and particular one that's going to give them tax cuts. So that was the... The thing that came out on the weekend that the sorry, poll... Bernard, one that one who says that he's going to give them tax cuts. Well, I, I think he he um, he's in a position with the idea for changing the tax thresholds to simply mm. say all I'm doing is catching up with inflation, moving these thresholds up. So um, this isn't so much a tax cut from an existing situation, but just like a catch up. Uh, unfortunately, when you look at the numbers, what it shows is that. Uh, for those people on the highest incomes, uh, that would be more than $1,000 a year. But for those people on the lowest incomes who are the most affected by these big increases in living costs, they'd be getting um, around about $2 a week. So that's not going to help anyone uh, that much. Um, and also cost about $1.7 billion a year. So uh, that that is obviously popular with uh, voters who are really feeling it on the cost of living at the moment. And we've seen with the attack from national quite but there's no there's no cost of living crisis though well that's that's what the prime minister as as, as super Trump might have said crisis what crisis what crisis well mm. this is really a problem for the prime minister um obviously she wants to put push back at national trying to drive the narrative uh into the corner of there's a cost of living crisis caused by the government when um so she has to put up a hand and deny it but uh the problem is it's in everyone's faces when you fill up at the service station, when you go to the grocery store, um, and also when you're paying your rent, uh, we're seeing inflation of five to six percent. 
And actually, um, we're going to see um, GDP numbers ne next week and then CPI numbers um, in about three or four weeks' time, which show that uh, inflation could hit 7% in the first quarter of this year uh, as, an as an annual rate. And that yeah, we is... might get some money on the money and get some return on the money in the bank. Well, yes, there is an increase in the official cash rate uh, coming. And um, some people believe, in fact, ANZ came out this week in a very hairy note to say there'd be two 50 point rate hikes in a row, um, which would uh, be the fastest OCR increases we've had in our history. And that, um, uh, that stirred things up a bit uh, and interest rates went, went up. But certainly this is a, proving a political problem for the government, even if they can say, well, it's not our fault that Vladimir Putin invaded uh, uh, Ukraine, and it's not our fault that the Germans have got, chose to get rid of their nuclear power plants, and it's not our fault that um, Venezuela is a mess. Mm. Um, you know, this is that's a fair argument. Um, and also on the food front, for me, actually, one of the sorry, what did you what did you say about Venezuela? Venezuela. Ah, well, Venezuela, um, as a basket case, uh, has actually the largest oil reserves in the ground in the correct, world. Correct. And have you seen that the Americans are having chats to the Venezuelans for the first time in about four years, having to, having tried to depose Maduro, because they might be able to replace a little bit of the Russian oil with the Venezuelan oil? Yeah. No, I, I did see that. And I, um, uh, I'm not sure, though, that the Venezuelans are that keen. I saw some pushback from them. Oh, what, a surprise, what an incredible surprise. I, <laughs> yeah. And it, yeah, I think the, I think the uh, Iranians might, might hold them by the testicles for a while, too, before they increase any production as well. Well, that's one of, the, one of the issues the government can say, hey, all of this stuff is happening to us from the rest of the world. There's nothing we can do. Same with interest rate increases. But... Um, it's 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 pretty politics 101 uh, to go straight for the hip mm. pocket and to say the government is causing your problems. And yeah, I think they'd better get out. And so do you noticed, of course, Bernard, and uh, we will get to Ukraine eventually, um, uh, Robert, but you, you are welcome to come in and tell us about your you know, palatial Dunedin home with the crenellated top provided by Otago University, no doubt, uh, from, from which you fly the Union Jack, I'm sure. If you believe but, that, you'll believe anything. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, but... Um, Bernard, oil prices did fall very sharply overnight, of course, and part of that is because the US imports a tiny percentage of oil from, the, from uh, Russia um, and has kind of uh, told the frackers to get fracking, as it were, um, and it's talking to Iran and it's talking to, talking to Venezuela again. And of course, the problem, though, is Europe. But, you know, uh, West Texas Intermediate fell something like 13% last night. Uh, Brent, uh, Brent crude has fallen, uh, and I noticed that uh, having having gone and filled up my little car yesterday, that I could now go to Gull in Rosebank Road and spend three dollars twenty seven per litre, as opposed to the three thirty five that I spent yesterday. So, bombs away. Yeah, the problem the problem in in, in Wellington uh, because we we don't have any of the uh, Gull uh, stations here is that you actually have to drive for an hour or two and then yes yeah, that's right. yeah you go to masterson to fill up yeah <laughs> that's right um, which, is, and that, which is the only good reason to go to masterson of course yeah, that's our masterson audience gone peter mm. um so yeah, well we could go the other way to go to levin which i'm not even sure levin exists and we all know that ekatahuna does not in fact exist well sad to say mm. that the um the average house price in Levin is approaching a million dollars too. <laughs> the cost, the cost of living. Yeah, yeah, the cost of living. So this is um, no, no, no. It's a pun, Bernard. The cost, cost of, of living. Cost of yeah. living. Oh. 
this is this is dad joke central. Mm, um, mm. Thank you. Have you got yeah. one to offer, please, Robert? Uh, no. <laughs> no, no, I can't compete with you guys. <laughs> no, no. Um, so uh, that whole cost of living thing is is hurting the government, and um, they were hoping for some help this week from the Commerce Commission, who were coming out with their final report on the grocery system with the with the um, potential to carve up the big duopoly into wholesale and retail, and then um, in the process, uh, in theory, save people some money. But in the end, the Commerce Commission decided not to recommend that, simply asked the duopolists to voluntarily start selling uh, goods wholesale to potential competitors, which um, has not left the government much room to either blame the duopolists for inflation or to um, actually be seen to be doing something. So unfortunately, it looks like another, you know, year-long working Well, I work. actually, so can I just say, Bernard, you know, no matter how socialist you are, and having lived in a, so, in a, in a properly, you know, post-communist country in Romania, you know, where you had what we used to call um, uh, temples of famine, which were empty supermarkets, which, which had plenty of staff and nothing in them, you know, that Commerce Commission thing is a dose of reality in a country with 5 million people where the market is going to sort this out potentially by bringing Aldi in. It is not, or, although I did drive past the Costco under construction and rather realised that, that, that that might make a significant difference, but nobody will be able to afford to drive there, of course. <laughs> well, that's, that is an interesting one. Costco is the, the one competitor that's coming into the market. Aldi um, have actually looked at coming into New Zealand, but one of the interesting things about uh, the report was that it showed the two big duopolists have put covenants on the land that uh, they negotiate with landowners, land bankers, to put their supermarkets on. So what they've effectively done is carved up the country and slapped big stickers on bits of land and mm. also on shopping centres. Yeah, well, that's, that's, that is at least something that one could imagine being regulated out of existence. Yeah, and we're, we are going to see that, which is good. But it, it, for a lot of New Zealanders who've lived overseas, um, uh, particularly in Britain, where you know there's real competition between the supermarkets. You've got three or four chains at it, uh, hammer and tongs every day, and even in Australia, where they went from two to three, they went from Coles and Woolworths to Coles Woolworths plus LD. If you're in Sydney or Melbourne, um, you really see the benefits of those. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I remember when we were children and working at Reuters a long time ago, Bernard, that Coles and Woolworths had Australia wrapped up, and Australia, like New Zealand now, had. Um, you know, the most extraordinary large margins in the world for supermarket goods. And, of course, in New Zealand, that was broken temporarily by Mr. Gube, if we remember from Mr. Or you probably don't remember, you're too young to remember Mr. Gube. It'll be Barry Saunders and I, we're the only people who remember him, who came in and created a supermarket chain called Three Guys. Ah, yes. Oh, uh, you're, you're talking to some fantastic supermarket history there. Mm, I, 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 sp I spent the last week going into the bells of supermarket history in New Zealand when we had things called Food Town. Do you remember Food I Town? I do one. Not only do I, yes, absolutely, I remember Food Town. But, but um, so um, uh, Mr. Gube had done this in the UK, had broken a couple of duopolies in the UK, came to here with three, three guys. And he reminds me, speaking of industrial relations history, which I'm possibly the only, <laughs> as Pat Clark says, Albert Gube won't be back unless we, <laughs> and, and, unless we go and exhume him from somewhere. But the other, he reminds me in a sense of um, Leo Dromgall, who tried to break the Waterside Workers Union in Maritime Workers Union in Auckland by running a um, hydrofoil between Auckland and Waiheke and uh, the Pakatoa, and which is why the um, 
the rather stylish, uh, I think it was a Neapolitan uh, hydrofoil spent most of its life sitting on, a, sitting on, the, on the hard on Auckland waterfront because the maritime office wet, wet unions were too strong. So if you want to go back to that kind of, you know, ah, union, union abuse. Polish shipyards. Yeah. 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 Mm. No, no. So um, uh, certainly that's a problem for the government, um, not having the Commerce Commission help them out of a spot there. And uh, the best they can do this week is to uh, water down the triple CFA uh, regulations so that banks can start lending again into the is housing it, market. Do, do, does one of the C's in triple CFA stand for communist? No, commerce. Commerce, not communist. Ah. <laughs> and uh, this was a rule actually designed to make it um, harder well, yeah. for, for well, the A. The A definitely stands for avocado, doesn't it? No, act, hmm. act as an as, as an act of act of law, act of parliament. So um, the triple CFA, and that's what the government's looked at, um, uh, which is which is good uh, because if you own a home, that's likely to see the credit flow back in there, and that's the one area where the government has a little bit of influence to make um, people feel better in the pocket, at least if they own a home. Uh, we've seen a 2.6% fall in house prices uh, since November, in part because of this blockage and the credit flow that's going into the housing market because of the triple CFA, which was forcing banks to uh, ask people what they had for coffee last week and whether or not they were going to have children. And uh, the changes to this legislation announced this morning. Well, they're, the, they're certainly not going to have coffee and have children. That's just silly. No, well, maybe not at the same time. But, mm. um, you know, uh, you, there's, there's the coffee date and then there's the coffee uh, in the evening. So, you know, maybe that's, maybe that's the thing. But the key thing for the banker is how much have you spent on the coffees and how much are you going to spend have, having didn't the children? I, didn't I see today that they've softened that so that they, you know, so that the socialists are no longer going to break into my letterbox and open up my bank statements and find exactly you know, that I've that I've been eating, you know, yep. at Dear Jervoice six times a week? Ah, yeah, no. So there's definitely no mortgages uh, there. You don't have to... You don't have to de uh, detail that anymore, which is great news um, uh, for the banks. That means they don't have to um, ask the awkward questions and the borrowers don't have to provide the awkward answers and everyone moves on and we can get the lending going again, even, <clears throat> even though interest rates have risen quite uh, substantially uh, since July last year and the Reserve Bank has tightened LVR restrictions. I reckon one of the main reasons for this um, uh, change in the triple um, CFA was to essentially, um, it, it was a cover for the banks to be able to blame the government for their own reasons. Yeah, absolutely. But wasn't it, isn't it also that everybody's just a bit sicker than any state? Well, yeah, this certainly wasn't a good look. I'm not sure that, that it's been framed yet as nanny, nanny statism. Um, that certainly worked for um, the opposition back 2003, 4, 5. Mm. I'm not sure that um, they've used that uh, that attack on this, uh, but certainly, it's from a from a retail politics point of view, it's very easy to just say, well, here's a crazy bit of overly bureaucratic and prescriptive legislation that's stopping first home buyers from really getting into the market because they're having to promise never to have children and well, stop. But just let, let's go back because I, I am a bit worried about poor old Robert there. Poor old Robert. Um, just going back for a moment to this poll. So I was talking to a friend of ours this morning, previous guest on the session, and he said, essentially, this New Zealand is living through a foreskins lament uh, moment. And I think we'd have to go back and find out what foreskins lament, which was a very famous New Zealand play 
was all about. But one of the one of the aspects that he said was that there's a moment in New Zealand when we get sick of being run by university educated smart asses. And he suggested that this this moment was now that the shift to Luxon was a moment when we no longer were interested in the um, ministrations of um, over-educated, um, university-educated people, and that this was going to signal a big shift back to national after two years of compliance, two years of being nice, two years of getting quite tired of the team of three minutes, five million, etc., and that uh, national might quite do, do quite well on a message of self-reliance. Yeah, I, I think you're right. Um, there is the... Pendulum. Not my view, of course. No, says. no, 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 no. There is a pendulum um, swinging back in that direction. You've seen it with a lot of the use of language around, you know, wokeism, and um, uh, maybe it's it's the it's the nanny state. Um, uh, Fifteen years on from uh, from Helen Clark, um, certainly it's causing all sorts of grief for the government politically at the moment, and um, it's difficult. Hey, I wanted Bernard, to Bernard. Could yes. I just say on that that note? Not that I'm an expert on domestic. Uh, political matters um i think we're reading too much into this poll yeah um, it's only four months and it's the first time that you know mr luxon has got his nose in front and we all know that if a week is a long time in politics so is a few months i mean the, the fact of the matter is i think the prime minister gets a lot of her strength from the fact that she's faced up to quite competently unexpected crises such as whether it be the christchurch terror atrocity whether it be COVID-19. Now, Mr. Luxon has had not too much time to face up to his unexpected challenges that are coming on the way. So I think we have to be quite cautious. Oh, he once, he once had a plane, an aircraft from Kaikoui that was running a little bit late. Well, yeah, no, I think, Robert, there's a fair point here from Robert in that um, it is one poll, although actually uh, there was also the Roy Morgan poll. And um, what I've been following is the relationship between consumer confidence and confidence in the government and also the right track, wrong track um, measures. And there has been a, a fall off in support for the government that's been quite uh, strong in the last six months or so. But I think, Robert, you're right in that um, I suspect the poll was taken at a particularly vulnerable moment. It's just after the protests. Um, people are right at the most fearful, um, painful part of the Omicron outbreak. There's been these various um, arguments about whether the government had enough rats on, here on time. And I suspect once we go through the, the Omicron wave and we come out the other side, I think um, you're right, it's going to be the, the new leader of the opposition is going to have some harder yards to, um, to go for. God, have you bumped them off? I haven't, no. Um, Jesus, you better bring him back. You better bring him back urgently, because we're, we're other, otherwise we're going. You know, we, we've, we've now got a professor of international politics commenting on New Zealand politics. Uh, yep. He'll be he'll be talking about epidemiology next, and then we'll be stuffed. Yeah, no, no yeah, I that's that's our territory. I got to yeah, say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think he'll be back shortly. I suspect Good. it's one of those. I bloody things. hope so. I think we I hope we haven't bored him to death with talking about <laughs> New Zealand polls. But I, you know, he'll be doing a Susie Wiles next and talking about you know spread epidemiological spread. Um, measles. Um, what else could he talk no, about? Which, no. How to make your own two-stroke for your outboard? <laughs> no, no, I don't. I don't. I think he'll be back though, because um... it is extremely funny at the moment. The people talking, you know, who people like us exactly, who've moved from being epidemiologists into um, into global politics experts, experts on sanctions now, and um, clearly experts on the on the disposal of nuclear weapons. 
not to mention the Geneva Convention. Yes, that's right. I've just texted Robert to see if he can jump back on. Which Thank God for that. Otherwise, it'll be a moment of silence, which we could yeah. never have. Well, one thing we can talk about with Ukraine that I think we could do as Robert is getting mm. back in mm. is um, I've spent some time over the last few few days trying to understand what all this means for the, the wheat and grains market. Ah, have you? And um, it's I found it stunning uh, to look at just how vulnerable the world is um, on the uh, the wheat and grains front mm, because mm. upwards of 30% of the world's grains are exported from Ukraine and mm. Russia. In, in essence, out through that breadbasket into the Black Sea and out into the Middle East and onto Asia. And the last time wheat prices were up at this level, have essentially um, risen 30 to 40% since the launch of the war. We had the outbreak of the... Um, uh, Egyptian spring yes. and um, all of those revolts that happened through um, uh, through uh, the Middle East were yeah. sparked by that um, increase in the wheat. It's, it's all about bread and circuses and they've got neither circuses nor bread. That's right. And the other thing is that we are uh, seeing um, not just for uh, wheat, but also a problem with fertilizer mm -hmm. and nutrients. It turns out that Russia is responsible for exporting half of the nutrients that are used in growing food in mm. uh, Europe and about a third to a quarter of various different types of fertilizer come from Russia, including potash. And um, some of the warnings we've seen in the last week from people in the World Health Organization and others about the um, issue of uh, food supply in the rest of the world for me, were really, really shocking. So um, if you look at, uh, there's a very good piece in the FT, um, uh, which come up, came up yesterday from um, a, a special advisor to Zelensky. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to um, put this up for people um, with a share on it. Actually, no, it's free to read. So that's good. I'll just put this up here. And... Um, uh, so, and what's the conclusion, Bernard? Uh, the conclusion is that um, a lot of the Ukrainian farmers have been using their tractors to tow tanks and armored personnel carriers away rather than plant their um, spring wheat. And well, they probably plant their spring wheat and they come across a whole bunch of Russian soldiers as they're you know, dug in well, as they're trying to... Exactly. You know, and a lot, of those, a lot of those farmers have uh, gone off and have um, joined the fight against the Russians. Mm, mm. The issue, though, of course, is that it's unlike um, some other things that you can put off the production of it, you can just wait for a while or store it up. The wheat has to be planted in a particular two-week mm -hmm. window in the year, which is coming up. Literally, it's in this week, next week, and the following week. Mm. That's when all of those um, seeds should be planted. That's when the tractors should be out there going up and down and not being um, interrupted by jets going over or people being blown up mm, right mm. next door. And so that means that that wheat, which was supposed to be planted in Ukraine and in significant parts of uh, Russia, is not going to be planted. And um, according to the um, special advisor there, um, this is a particular problem for the world and is one that we have to think about. Um, we still don't have Robert back there. God, maybe he got irritated by him to discuss uh, New Zealand politics. He's probably gone off to do some other podcast with those lunatics at RNZ. No, no. Um, 
I'm just having having another look here. Uh, we better do. We better. We actually maybe next week we should address the merger of RNZ and TVNZ. Should we? Yeah, um, that would be. Ah. That uh, yeah, would, yeah. No, that would be good. Um, well, let's. So, what are we going to do? Stay on. Stay on Ukraine for just a minute, Bernard. So, I think so. let's just let's just make the segue. In there. We, so, we agree with our professor of international politics, do we not? That while this is an interesting moment for Luxembourg to have taken over, um, it may not presage the end of Labour. Despite my assertion from our friend that um, this might mean uh, a return to the era of um, Foreskin's lament. Yeah. Yeah. No, I am. Um... Uh, I'm just going to just spend some time sending Robert the link back. A yeah. push link, I'm, af I'm afraid. Apologies for this. Well, that's all right. Let me just let me just share this. Um, oh, excellent. Oh, hang on, hang on. Oh, you, you're doing your share screen, and I'm trying to share my screen. Yep. God, these people will think we're all we think we're bloody idiots like this most of the time, aren't they? I'm sure it isn't. It isn't very attractive viewing right now. Let me just quickly. <laughs> Please bear with us, people, as we uh, deal well, with Well, let me, let me segue to a story that I, I also sure. talked about in, in spin-off this week, um, which is an absolutely extraordinary interview in The Atlantic magazine with MBS, um, uh, uh, Mohammed bin, Sol bin Salman, the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, also known unpopularly as Mr. Bonesaw, after the uh, murder and dismemberment of the journalist um, Khashoggi. Uh, the detail of which my most interesting detail is the um, cooking of various parts of his body in a tandoori oven in the in the home of the um, Saudi Arabian consul in Istanbul. Uh, and in this interview, um, uh, Mohammed bin Salman essentially says, "You know, yes, we messed up. No, I didn't order the murder of him. But if I had ordered the murder of the murder of him, I would have done a lot better job. And there are thousands of people ahead of him in the list that we would need to murder if we were going to murder people." It is Yikes. the most extraordinary thing. So I, I would I will send you a link to it. It probably is behind a subscription, but you've also got a link in there to my um, to my uh, spin-off um, column, and I can tell you in there that the the juiciest four paragraphs I have lifted because the story was about eight thousand words. But it really is alarming because it, it 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 talks about the hard place that we're in with Saudi Arabia, where you either accept a guy who can have um, a journalist murdered, cut up partly while he, while he was still alive uh, and then try and hide it, and probably whose hands were taken back uh, to give evidence to MBS that he'd been, he'd, he'd, they'd been killed. Um, or you have the jihadists, uh, and essentially MBS makes a trade-off between, do, do you want me to cuddle up to the United States or do you want me to cuddle up to China? Uh, and so there's a, it's a really interesting geo, geopolitical thing, which we'll talk about uh, for 90 minutes next time without asking Robert any questions. Now, Robert, ah, I'm Robert. We're, we're just going to segue back to Ukraine with you because I'm extremely concerned that a professor of international um, international politics starts talking talk about New Zealand polls. I mean, you'll be you'll be doing epidemiology and um, and, <laughs> and, and, and other things next. So we, we, t tell us what you think is happening with Ukraine right now. We've got these a couple of really interesting things I'd like you to address, which is the sure. uh, Polish offer, theoretically, which may be more of a more of a paper tiger or a paper airplane than uh, than a real airplane, which is to send their MiG 29s to Ramstein Air Base to be supposedly replaced with F-16s from yep. the United States, and then the United States would give them to um, Ukraine. Now, the United States has ruled that out as being far too much of an escalation. So that's one point I'd love you to address. Yes. Yeah, well, first of all, I, I'm, I think we're each 
uh, we're in day 16 now of the invasion, and I think we're reaching a very dangerous moment. I think it's clear that uh, Mr. Uh, Putin's blitzkrieg has not come up to expectations, and there are clear signs that the military, and remember, we met, we discussed this before, there were military critics of Mr. Putin in Russia who warned it would not be a walk in the park for the Russians in Ukraine, and I think they feel they're vindicated now. There's also the shocking revelation, the FSB, remember Mr. Putin was mm. once director mm. of that, was not consulted before the invasion. And uh, wow. they've been particularly stung by the fact they've been accused, apparently, by Putin's in a circle of not preparing adequately for the invasion. Well, they responded, well, you never told us you're going to do mm. it. Mm. So that backdrop, I think, is dangerous because I think um, Mr. Putin now has to get some sort of, from his point of view, some sort of uh, accelerated victory, if that's the right way of putting it. I don't think there's any victory for him to be had, mm. either militarily or politically. Um, but on the MiGs thing, um, oh, sorry, why I think it's dangerous is that there does seem to be a real concern that Mr. Putin may use chemical weapons, mm. which I think would create a situation. He used them, by the way, in Syria, mm -hmm. um, and he's pretty ruthless. And um, pretty, well, pretty, we know pretty, he's very ruthless. ruthless. I was going to say, that's the understatement <laughs> somebody said of the he's year. not a killer; he's a serial killer. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, so I don't. Th I think, given the fact he's pretty cornered now, well, depending on what he's doing to the wheat price, he probably is a serial killer, actually. Yeah, but the, the, I think the thing here is that that's why it's very dangerous because I think he may be seriously contemplating overcoming the Ukrainian very you know brave resistance and tenacious existence. And also the fact that his military are really struggling. And another spectacular ambush overnight mm, when mm. they lost a tank commander. Um, he may try and short circuit the process by bringing in weapons. Now, on the, the MiGs, MiG-29 thing, I think the Americans have got to be very careful here. Let's be quite clear. They've already transferred, as have mm. the EU and NATO, lots of lethal weaponry to the Ukrainians, the Javelin anti-missile um also the stinger missile mm -hmm. um sorry the javelin anti-tank missile and, and and the stinger missile which have both been very competently deployed by the ukrainian military uh, but the americans balked at the polish offer to transfer 29 they're all their 29 mig 29s mm -hmm. to um the uh, the ukrainian air force which of course Zelensky. that was one of the things he screamed out for in his yeah. audience but the issue the issue is not so much that the polls would have done it directly it's that they yeah. want to, they wanted to be done through the americans yes coordinated um but i think that's also because they wanted to have what the americans call backfill capabilities that if they did it through the americans that would ensure they're not left um with sort of exposed having transferred some of these capabilities it's mm -hmm. a bit of a complex story uh, Kamala Harris has apparently been dispatched to sort it all out. Uh, but putting that aside, uh, one thing that does worry me is uh, that the, the perception that Mr. Putin may be getting that the West are still tiptoeing around him. Mm. Now, the reason I think this is very serious, uh, we've all, you know, it's, it's splitting hairs to say that a MiG air fighter plane is more lethal than Javelin or Stinger. They're, they're all lethal. Mm. Um, 
the, the point is that from Mr. Putin's view of the world, which is zero sum in social terms, there's no, there's only winners and losers. There's no winners and winners. He may well believe this, this is the West blinking and that they are taking his threat seriously. And I, I think that's, that's worrisome. Why is it worrisome? Because the domestic opposition, which is clearly getting ahead of steam now mm -hmm. in Russia, um, will be strengthened by the West being firm and not backing. I don't mean being provocative. Yeah. I mean, striking the right balance between not being provocative, but also not being seen as too worried about Mr. Putin's threats. And um, in a sense, if Mr. Putin can claim that he's got NATO on the defensive, that makes anybody thinking of opposing him think twice. Mm. And um, it, there is a connection between how the rest of the world handles this crisis and the appetite for people to oppose Putin within Russia. Yeah, there's two, so, two things, two things, forgive me, Bernard, two things he said today. One thing Lavrov said and another thing Putin, Putin said. Um, Putin said, described the sanctions as economic warfare. So I think we can expect a military response to that economic warfare. And Lavrov, who, you know, he really does have the um, triple backflip with um, with Pike and twist of cynicism, said that, you know, the, the Ukraine entered in order to prevent the Americans creating chemical weapons in Ukraine and that there's a huge fear of chemical weapons. Now, what's happened in the past, of course, particularly in Syria, is the moment the Russians start talking about chemical weapons, they deploy chemical weapons under the guise of combating yeah. other people's chemical weapons. So I think that's just, a concern. Maybe, maybe talk a little bit about, if you wouldn't mind, but uh, Robert, if I give you a word in edgewise, is to deal with this question of economic warfare and the moment when it gets ratcheted up to, this, to, to that it becomes warfare. Well, you've, let's be quite clear on this. Um, the warfare has been initiated by Russia invading in an unjustified fashion its neighbour. Um, the, the thing about Mr. Putin and Mr. Lavrov, first of all, Mr. Lavrov can't do anything without Mr. Putin's authorization. Mm. Um, it was interesting. It was a meeting between the Russian foreign minister and the Ukrainian foreign minister. And the Ukrainian foreign minister said that the, his counterpart from Russia openly admitted he couldn't make any decisions at the meeting mm. until he had consulted with the president. So he's kept on a tight leash. Um, both Mr. Putin and Mr. Lavrov like fairy tales and they like lullabies. And some of their narratives at the moment are, you know, uh, bizarre to say the least. But, um, I, 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 you know, Mr. Putin is also, we, we shouldn't lose sight of this. When he talks about economic warfare, um, it's also part of his narrative that uh, the Ukraine crisis has been, caught, been caused by Western aggression via NATO. Mm. Um, and so, in a sense, I, I, you know, it may be a ratcheting up of the situation, um, but he's not addressing the reasons why Russia is on the receiving end of mm. those mm. Uh, mm. sanctions. So it, it's the usual thing. I, I, I was struck again by this sort of circular logic that both Putin and Lavrov engaged in. Lavrov recently said he was particularly concerned. One of the reasons they were in an interview with Al Jazeera early in the week, Lavrov mentioned they were deeply concerned in the Kremlin when Mr. Zelensky, the President Zelensky, said they might have to consider nuclear weapons at some point in the future. Well, the reason Zelensky was saying that was because 190,000 troops 
had mm. mobilized on his border in the last yeah, six yeah. months, despite yeah. the fact Ukraine had given yeah, they, up nuclear weapons. They, we could devote an entire session. In fact, we have done this a couple of times before in the, in the last yeah. couple of years because it's one of my favorite subjects. But the, the pretzel logic and the truth as lies and lies as truth that the Russians deploy is the most extraordinary thing because it is it is all part of a plan of chaos where you just cannot believe anything. It fits with their social media plan. Um, and it reminds me of a book which I've just put up a link to, which I, uh, uh, is called, by Peter Pomerantsov, who's a very mm. clever young writer. Nothing is true and everything is possible. And that really is the climate that, that Putin has created. Um, the Economist this week is extremely interesting to me. It's, it's talking about um, Putin Stalinizing Russia again. And, you know, I wrote about this. I talked to you about it mm. the other day for a, uh, an excellent piece that's coming up. And well, ex- it's actually superb because it's written by me, of course, coming up in North and South this month, uh, which I draw our readers' attention to. If, if you all buy it, it'll quadruple North and South uh, results this month. Um, you know, the, 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 the attributes of Putin that are comparable to Stalin are quite remarkable now. The, the rule by fear, the rule of chaos, the great terror idea. Yeah, he's making the same mistakes that Brezhnev did mm. in the 70s. In, un- in, in misreading the West and underestimating, because Putin and his inner circle have been convincing themselves, A, that they're leader of a worldwide conservative revolution. That's why you've got people in the United States backing Putin um, on the far right at the moment, in Republican, some in Republican circles. And they believe that the West is inevitable decline. Mm. Um, that feeling circulated back in the late 70s when America lost Vietnam, and that feeling circulate in Putin's Kremlin because of perhaps the impact that Mr. Putin was able to have in causing divisions within the United States by mm. backing Trump and that sort of thing. But what's clear is that things are not working out. He's, he may have a plan to Stalinize Russia, but good luck to him in a globalized world. The, mm. the mm. world is very, very different than what it was. He's also mm. offended groups which he actually depends on. So, uh, you know, it's an interesting situation we're witnessing. Um, there's uh, just to counter the argument that, you know, he, he, that he's through Stalinizing. There is interesting developments in the last 24 hours where the state media under his control have actually started mild criticism of the invasion of Ukraine. Wow. Really? So um, uh, one or two, it's all been done in a coded fashion. But it shows you that there is actually quite a high level of discontent, even within the official state media. So, and why? Because I think being severed from the SWIFT system of uh, financial payments is likely to have dramatic impact. Mm -hmm. We've seen 290 companies curtail their business or withdraw from Russia. This is all having dramatic impacts, and it's particularly affecting the elite in Russia. Yeah. So, well, look, I, I would look forward to the nationalisation of McDonald's in, um, in 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 Russia. Having, you know, I was in um, Serbia at one point you, in 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 Belgrade when the uh, sanctions were imposed on Belgrade, and the main impact was that the um, the McDonald's ran out of chips. Is that they they couldn't get the parts to repair the chip machine. They were still making burgers hand over fist, but they couldn't couldn't get any chips. And as we know, you know, McDonald's cannot really be consumed without the chips. Um, Barry Burns asks a question, which we have discussed before, but I think we should answer, which um, when did Ukraine give up, give up nuclear weapons? uh, And were they promised any protection against Russia? And the answer to that is 2008, was it? No, no, 1998. In the, in the, they they gave up uh, their nuclear weapons in what was called the Budapest Agreement. Mm -hmm. 
which was um, um, underpinned or guaranteed by the United States, UK and Russia. Mm. And it was particularly involved Russia. Um, and um, Russia agreed to respect Ukraine's sovereignty and territorial integrity and guarantee it. Mm. Well, of course, they broke that in 2014 with the annexation of Crimea. Mm. But, um, yeah, I mean, it, it, it you know, um, I, I think Mr. Putin's position, um, it's become dangerous for the world because politically, I can't see how he can easily get out of this. No, I mean, Thomas Friedman, who I have very little regard for in most times because of his ludicrous um, hagiographic nonsense about Mohammed uh, bin Salman, Mr. Bonesaw, um, wrote a piece overnight saying that, you know, Putin was now cornered and that made him very worried that lashing out was the next most logical response. And I think, as we've seen with the Beslan massacre, with the uh, killings in the in the in the in the theatre in in Moscow, with the apartment bombings, the Chechen war, he really doesn't care, and that lashing out uh, and going down all all guns blazing is going to be a really good idea. But Bernard, did you give me control of the screen, by the way, of my screen? Can uh, I? Could, could you give me push? Because I'll put there's a very very good um, Sharon Murdoch cartoon today of Putin with a with a, 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 a belt of nuclear weapons around his tummy saying, just go ahead and make me, just go ahead and make me. Yeah. And, you know, there is, a, there is a kind of holding people to host, holding himself hostage here. Yeah, Putin's very good at playing a weak hand well, though. Mm. I mean, his economy was struggling before this crisis. They just don't have the economic capacity to take over Ukraine, even if they, even if they were militarily successful. Mm -hmm. And secondly, politically, they can't. It's over. It, it, you know, the whole he basically his strategy really involved a quick fate accompli where the West were, were shocked and, and, and taken back and the country was overrun within about a matter of days. That's that hasn't happened. And, you know, the Ukrainians or well, Mr. Putin obviously thinks Ukraine is an inseparable part of Russia. But 45 million Ukrainians don't agree. And that's become even more evident in the last 15, 16 days. So he is in a really difficult position and the military um some military uh seem to have taken the view um that he really miscalculated badly and really ups undermining uh, national interest so robert um i'm curious about um uh what nato might do if we do get some sort of use of chemical weapons and um how much they can push back uh, safely, because that seems to be the real risk there, that if there is an actual clash between actual NATO troops or planes and Russian troops or planes, that Putin might see that as um, an excuse to, you know, actually do something very, very dangerous. Bernard, you're absolutely right. This is a very difficult decision-making, a choice. I think it was um, Edmund Burke once said, politics is often a choice between the intolerable and the disagreeable. This is a classic case. If they do use a chemical attack, particularly on a heavily populated civilian area, um, I think it will be difficult for NATO just to be indifferent. Um, because it, A, it would be um, a bri major breach of the Chemical Weapons Convention. They've done it before, of course, in Syria. But the reason I think they'll be find it, find it different because they will worry about inaction. If they didn't respond, then Mr. Putin may be emboldened to do that elsewhere. Mm. And um, I also think, the, you know, a scientist would have to correct me here, 
But I think some of the sur countries surrounding um, Ukraine would inevitably be contaminated by a chemical attack. In other words, the attack was not being confined to the territorial boundaries Absolutely. of Ukraine, yeah. which would mean that NATO would have to invoke Article 5 because it, that could be seen as an attack. If chemical agents are coming across the border into Poland from a use of chemical weapons in the Ukraine, it would be very difficult for NATO to remain indifferent. The other thing is there's a very interesting comment on this precisely this question today from Jonathan Powell, who was a, a foreign policy advisor to um, Thatcher and Tony Blair. Blair. Mm. Yeah, Tony Blair. And he said, we must learn from the lessons where the chemical weapons have been used before and the West has basically turned a blind eye and pretended nothing has happened. Some ritual denunciations, but nothing really followed and said it would only embolden Putin if he got away with it. So I think in a sense, um, it is no easy answer, but I think of the two, I think NATO probably would have to react rather than be passive. And um, one of the other things that I'm curious about is um, now that Germany has crossed the Rubicon to start ramping up its military and the French have always had a slightly standoffish approach to NATO, if um, NATO doesn't respond, could you see the likes of um, could you see the likes of uh, Germany and France um, look to take any of their own action, or at least um, be more aggressive than than the United States? I can't at the moment, um, but there does seem, in the case of Germany, uh, they've actually seems to be more hardline now towards Putin. In many, in some respects, than the French under Mr. Macron, uh, they like to work together. I, I think they, I think ideally they want to work within a NATO framework. After all, NATO is designed to deal with precisely a situation where, if one of its members is under attack, they all respond. So I think they'd be a bit reluctant to just sort of, um, uh, you know, d d break ranks. Um, I can only see that happening if there was a huge division within NATO over what to do. So, so, so let's just say our hypothetical chemical weapons attack occurred and then there was great deep divisions within NATO and the majority looked like they wanted to remain passive in that, say, in that context. Then you may have some pressure from countries like Poland and um, uh, one of, well, I think Poland might be the one, um, possibly Germany, but it's very difficult to know before we're talking about hypotheticals here. Um, I still think on balance, they'll try to maintain their unity. Now I've got a question here from James Brown asking uh, how hard uh, the West and NATO should push on the economic sanctions, because I think everyone's been quite su surprised at the strength and how quickly Russia has been unraveled from the global economy. All of these uh, multinationals pulling out, some of, some of them who you wouldn't expect, you know, all of the big oil companies, uh, the big yeah. car companies, um, a lot of the fast-moving consumer goods companies, Coke and Pepsi and the likes. How, how hard is too hard? Because there's a risk here that in the process of um, using sanctions instead of other weapons, that you completely wreck the Russian economy in the same way that um, uh, the Allies wrecked the German economy uh, after the First World War? Um, 
Yeah, I mean, I think the first world, the, the origins of the first world war were more ambiguous than the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Um, I, I think there is a concern here. But on the other hand, again, you know, coming back to our equation about the possible use of chemical weapons and how NATO should react, I think this is a comparable thing in the sense that, you know, I, I'm, I'm personally pleased they're sending a clear message economically to Mr. Putin. Um, to do nothing would have been disastrous because I don't think his ambitions, and he's made it quite clear, his ambitions are not confined to Ukraine. He wants mm -hmm. NATO to basically clear out of Eastern Europe. Um, so uh, go back to the 1997 arrangement. So I think basically, um, you know, Mr. Putin has created this crisis. We can't necessarily save him from the consequences of, that it has triggered. Mm. Um, and, and, you know, people are saying, oh, we shouldn't put too much pressure on him because, you know, he's cornered and he, he may lash out. And that's true. Mm. And I don't think we should have any illusions about that. But at the same time, Russia is a highly educated society. It's authoritarian. Many Russians disagree with what's happening, but they cannot speak out. There's been many protests in what, 44 cities. I, I think the economic pressure will help to fuel a debate that already stirred before he moved into the Ukraine. Um, so, again, how hard is hard? That's a very difficult thing to say, you know, measure. Uh, to say, oh, we can't go further than that. It, it depends to some degree on his behaviour. He shows no sign. He's mm. doubling down at the moment. And so, if you're going to if you're going to make this costly for the regime, presumably, you, you know, and, and some companies, are, 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 you know, as Peter and Bernard have said, companies we didn't expect to move have moved mm. on it. Mm. Um, and just just uh, just finally, um, Robert, we're heading up to five o'clock. I just wondered what are the things we should watch for over the next week or two, the um, the, the turning points, the thresholds that um, could could change things. Obviously, there's the chemical weapons, but I'm particularly curious about within Russia itself and whether there's any prospect of um, the other elites there deciding this is too far and they have to get rid of them. Well, two things, I think. Um, firstly, the Russian military seems to have stalled in the last 24 hours, whether they can regain any momentum. And I'm not just talking about missile attacks. I'm talking about infantry and tanks moving forward. They've been stalled outside Ukraine now for some uh, outside Kiev, Kiev for some time. And it will be that's something to look for. Will the Russians be able to up there well, I was going to say, Bernard, can we can we go on for a couple more minutes, Bernard? Sure, sure. A couple of quick. So, uh, I, I know strictly speaking, you're not a military analyst in this in this regard, Robert, and nor an epidemiologist. But one of the things that I've, I've noticed is, and we've all noticed, it's extremely difficult to get a complete picture of mm. the disposition of forces and the effectiveness of forces. And I think that's also leading to some not terribly good journalism around what kind of weapons are being used and what is and is not being done. And it seems to me that the Russians have bogged down into a situation where they're going to increasingly use standoff weapons. And we sometimes refer to things as having been bombed when in fact they've been shelled by artillery from a long way away, long way when away. there's no aircraft, no aircraft there at all. So I think 
there's some poor journalism being done on this, which under extreme difficulty, because also the Ukrainians are not giving any intelligence out about the disposition of forces. It's almost impossible to get that from uh, the Russians. And I suspect the people who have the best knowledge on this at the moment is NATO and, uh, and the United States. But it is important, I think, to think about the kinds of weapons that are being used, because, you know, mortars and artillery are very, very indiscriminate. They are. Um, yes, but, you know, they, and, and the Russians also, of course, have hyperbaric weapons, um, which uh, if I can just make it make a plug for the for the BBC World, World Service document uh, podcast. I know there's only one podcast worth listening to, which I think is my third pl- plug for our work this week. There's a very good one called <laughs> U- U- Ukraine Cast. And today's one is excellent. It's an about and it's about uh, disinformation. But in particular, they had a very good military analyst on who was talking about the use of hyperbaric weapons and where they'd come mm. from, which was, of course, originally from the United States to be used as a uh, mind clearing device. But then they realized that they were actually extremely good for eliminating large numbers of people and demolishing buildings. But I suspect we're going to see some spectaculars from a long way away. Possibly. Is that a bit interesting? But so to answer Bernard's question, though, I think two trends. One, on the military side that Peter's just sort of referenced, uh, will there be serious progress by the Russians? Uh, in Because in, so far they've only captured one city, which is not, in, you know, from their point of view is, is less than they want. I think the second trend to keep an eye on is whether now Navalny's people and others mm. can continue this level of protest, which seem to mm. always peak around the weekends. Mm. Um, they've already had about 6,000 people, maybe more arrested for protesting. But 44 cities is quite a significant number mm. to be affected. Mm. And if anything, there may be people sitting on the fence who may be tempted, given the economic consequences of the war now, Putin's war, mm. to join in. So that's another thing, I think, for us to keep our eyes on in the, in, you know, in the next week going forward. But the thing about war, it's so unpredictable. There may also be you know, um, other things we just haven't factored into our discussion that could come out of the blue, so to speak. Yeah, I wonder, I wonder, uh, Robert, whether there's, um, I mean, somebody mentioned a bit, uh, forgive me, it was Steve Cox just asking what was going to happen in Belarus. It wouldn't surprise me at all if you start to get some more aggravation nibbles along the border, whether that's in Georgia, in Abkhazia, um, you know, just niggling in Georgia, because he's, you know, this is, there's a reason he's kept these little conflicts warm, whether it's the one in Georgia, whether it's the Transdenestra mm. Republic. So what, what do you think about that, that there might be these little you know, we might see little little forest fires breaking out in some of these places. What do you mean as a distraction for Putin? Well, as a, as to to not without him having to commit major forces, but to create bigger headaches for his neighbours. Yes, but on the other hand, that can work two ways. He mm. helps put down unrest in both Kazakhstan and Belarus, and there's mm-hmm. already stirrings apparently in Belarus mm. about Belarus's involvement in the war, mm. and so it could it could there could be. You know, if these Russian protests intensify, that may have a, a spillover effect in Kazakhstan and also Belarus. So, it, it, you know, it's possible. It's a very fluid situation. And a lot will depend on, I think, the Western world keeping its nerve hmm. and not um, be, not tiptoeing around Putin too much, but also being measured in its response. Um, and also, um, if the, Ukrainian can, the Ukrainians can keep up this fantastic... Um, and heroic level of resistance, mm. which is extraordinary. And um, on that front, my my skateboarding dog story um, of the week is the amazing grandmother 
in the Ukraine who um, stood uh, up on the roof or on the top floor of her building and threw a jar of pickled tomatoes at a Russian drone and knocked it out of the sky. <laughs> oh, that is a good story. That's all right. We'll leave my Nazi stories till next week. That's a brilliant one, but thank you. <laughs> Uh, thank you very much, everyone. Really appreciate your time. And thank you so much again, Robert, for uh, being you. here. And um, thank you for persisting and getting back in. It's fantastic. Yeah, sorry about and, that. I don't know what happened. And we'll interview, interview you about anti-vaxxers next week, Robert. Oh, thank no, you. no, no. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Peter. Thank you very much. Thanks, everybody.